I'm really enjoying spending this time together uh, with you all, practicing together, and tangibly experientially, at least from my perspective, feeling the auspiciousness of this gathering and this time we've spent together, this, this first almost half of the retreat. Experientially sensing the I think Jaya was talking about devouring the afflictions. I've never heard that before, but I like that. You got to watch out. She'll she'll chew them up. (laughs) But we were so upset and so tangled, and before you know it, where'd that go? There can be moments I can't take another second. Cosmic scream. And then other moments, you know, we want to dedicate my life to the Dharma. <laughs> no, no, not my life. My, my future life. Countless lives until the last blade of grass is fully free. And back in that hole again. But the tangible, just in four days, from my perspective of this metabolizing, this transmutation of heaviness, of sluggishness, of undigested restlessness, of, of fevered, wanting and not wanting. Sometimes uh, meditators are compared to trees. I love that. You might just think that tree's uh, just sitting there not doing much. Actually, with the size of that tree, we get some good wood there, I could bring in some bucks. Sometimes we just see trees as material for profit, which it has its function, but much to our peril, and that's all we see. As we know, in trees, they're the the lungs. Of our home atmosphere. They breathe in the carbon dioxide and breathe out our life-giving oxygen. purifying as they quietly stand rooted in the ground, rooted in Mother Earth, towering into the heavens. 
might not look like you know much has happened. Yeah, a hundred people sitting on their butts. World's burning, and what are you guys doing? You might really look from one perspective, quite a deluded perspective, I believe, that nothing really is happening here. You're so passive, sitting around. Okay, occasionally a walking to and fro like some kind of <laughs> insane asylum. But there's this, this, this deep blessing, alchemy, transmutation going on. Without a lot of fancy equipment. Being with our body, standing, sitting, walking, lying down, running, stretching, pausing, eating, relieving ourselves. And being with the cosmic rhythm, the swelling and subsiding of the in and the out breath. that even just that has a a powerful effect, this training the heart, training awareness to return, and to uh, connect, that's what mindfulness means, to connect, to remember. It's not the actual etymology, but, but I love the suggestion, remember as opposed to dismember. When we get dismembered, fractured, disjointed, dislocated. When we're practicing mindfulness, there's a remembering, a realigning in the different pieces, far-flung pieces of our being. Minds thinking away in some future, some past. Emotions are pulling us this way, pulling us that way. Bodies getting drug along, pumped with caffeine trying to keep up and then it collapses on us. We kick that thing, come on! (laughs) We got stuff to do. Yeah, the body can get back. I was Mr. Willful for a long time when I used to be a champion wrestler, which is, might be hard for you to believe, but just... (laughs) Just withhold judgment. <laughs> You're looking at the 126-pound, five-time Mid-South champion, 118-pound National Prep Invitational champion. I was doing 500 push-ups a day, climbing ropes. I could walk on my hands for 100 yards. We had a wrestling mat at home just so we could practice all the time, anytime. So I was, I knew that nobody can work harder than me, I figured. So I just would work, 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 work. And, uh, you know, willpower is wonderful. And, uh, there's a lot of blessings that can come from it. But sometimes you run into something that you just can't shift. 
when I got typhoid fever and then was uh, laid out to the edge of death and then for pretty much three years after that I was lying down and uh, the willpower couldn't shift it. So sometimes times things come up that you, we, we just can't shift. I'm trying to make the body get well. And these are these afflictions that we've been looking at. Sometimes, you know, we're calming down, returning, steadying, and then it's too hot. We can try, get all the windows just perfect. It, it's too cold. It's, it's hurts. Sometimes we can't shift it. And yes, it's skillful to do the best we can. But you get this all lined up and then something else sticks out. Ajahn Chah said he found that out living in community. He loved living on his own. But then in community, he wanted to get everyone in a, in a row nicely, so he lined up all their heads then their, then their feet were sticking out at different. He went and lined up all their feet, and then their heads were sticking out. We try to get it all just right, and someone's breathing too loud. Then we realize it was us. <laughs> These afflictions, and to you know they're. Calm is wonderful, but it, it's impermanent and things shift. And Jaya guided us into to this, this very important territory this morning. This contemplation. Using this, uh, this acronym of RAIN is one way in. Of recognize, allow investigate and non-identification or, or nature that when, when when something's coming up that we're, we're we're struggling with you know a big big thing is to recognize it to, to just notice whoa I'm struggling this is suffering this is difficult this is dukkha And then, then, then the allowing. Sometimes there's a problem, we just want to fix it. But then we don't understand the suffering. The Buddha talked about the noble truth of suffering. That which is not easy to bear. He says it's noble. What's so noble about it, Kitty Sorrow? I'm getting there, just be patient. <laughs> If it's just bad, we label it as bad, and we get away from it, then a part of our being is bound to it as we're keeping it away. We think, Phew, finally I'm free from it, and part of us is bound up in that aversion to that. This allowing means we experience it. It's ennobling because we have to deepen our capacity to be real, to be human. To acknowledge that we're sensitive and this realm we live in is, is, is a realm of pleasure and pain. 
the realm of everything shifting. It's not an easy realm. We're, we're vulnerable, we're fragile, we're subject to aging and sickness and death. Yet when there's an opening to it, that's what allowing means, opening, there's a possibility of understanding. At the very least, when we do that, we deepen our capacity to be compassionate, to, to be with that which is suffering. It's our own at the moment, but that's where we start. As we deepen in that, then we'll, be, we'll really know and be able to help others. And that allowing has the space then for investigation. The word that the Buddha often, uh, or another popular word that refers to this contemplation is vipassana. Pasana means to see, vi means into, to reflect into. The two wings of meditation are samatha vipassana, the calming, the body, the long breath, the short breath, the deepening and training ourselves to be sensitive to and experience the whole body and learn how to calm the body. As I've sat with a group over the days, I've, I've felt such an increase in that samadhi, natural samadhi of the group. That, that smoothness that we experience when uh, there's composure, when there's the absolute lack of composure, every little sound, every little branch hitting something, we move. It's like a, dar- a dog that barks at the slightest thing. <laughs> And something else, something over there. Now look, okay, forgive me, dog. That might be samadhi, but that's not my understanding of samadhi. It looks quite bouncy. But notice as one as one composes, then you know, the in breath, out breath, stuff happens, and there's more. Steadiness. but we can't stay there all the time. I wish I could. When I first started to meditate, when I got a taste of that, whoa, that was enlightenment. Then when I saw some lights, I thought, yeah, now we're getting there. It's coming, the calmness, and some lights came, and I just thought, whoa, when it gets strong enough, it's going to be kaboom. <laughs> so I would get calm. Then someone would start making some noise, as I've told people before. You know, I I had a war on clocks in our monastery for years. (laughs) Loud ticking clocks. And and even the abbot brought a loud ticking clock in for the winter retreat. I couldn't believe it. What's he doing? So in between periods, I thought, well, you know, he is getting old. This was Ajahn Sumedho. (laughs) I would put a cloth under the clock. 
thinking it would absorb the sound. And that, that didn't do it. It was because, you know, I would get samadhi for a whole second and then clang, <laughs> clang, clang, clang. So, okay, okay, that's not working. So then I had to find a non-ticking clock. Anyway, I lost the war on clocks because it was kind of, as Ajahn Chah would say, my chalot, that's not very smart. <laughs> he would say, Micha ditti lamang. He would say, wrong view. So that was wrong view. But, you know, we won't calm. And so at some point, that calm is an impermanent state. So then these afflictions of desire for calm or aversion to disruption or... Jaya laid them out this morning. The territory. That's where contemplation, vipassana, is just very, very, very useful for seeing the nature, investigating, and then then noticing the way we get stuck, we identify with. And And the big key, the big liberating key, is to notice change. Because when we start to notice change, something important happens. And as uh, Jaya was also mentioning, that seems so, you know, obvious. We would all, everybody would pass the exam with flying colors. I mean, if you asked, is the weather permanent or impermanent? We would all say, impermanent. Is my bank balance permanent or impermanent? (laughs) Is my skin permanent or impermanent, we would all get it. But it's, it's different to, you know, how, how do we live? How does our perceptual mechanism work? And, you know, we were talking about this word punya, or the good energy that comes from wholesome action. You know, the Buddha, you know, we started the retreat from this wonderful energy, the great gifts, the streams of blessing, that which is nourishments of happiness ripening in happiness that lead to what is loved and agreeable. Talked about taking refuge, this wonderful punya, wonderful blessed energy, the precepts which are our gifts of offering immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. The Buddha talked about the great, you know, blessings of making offerings and things like that. But he said, you know, more than all of that put together is, is just even a, a finger snap, he said, of cultivating the perception of impermanence. Cultivating the perception of impermanence. Something's there, we give it a sound, it, it is, and then poof, it's gone. He said, more than all the wonderful gifts, offering things to Buddhas, building pagodas, or even taking refuge in the precepts when we notice change is something very, very important. 
perception of solidity and things being substantial is very deep-rooted and powerful. Like right now, we can give the way we conceive. Ending of the fourth day and night, Dharma talk. We might have views about how we're doing. Oh, well, I was making progress and now I'm kind of losing it. But I'm getting, uh, I was getting a bit closer. I, I can definitely think I, it's, it's progress. It's progress. The Dharma talk, that was a great talk or a terrible talk or whew, it was, bless his heart, it's a bit of a boring talk. <laughs> you know, but you know, he's, he's no Ajahn Chah. But when we, you know, talk, there's these, these nouns, these things, me and you and, and you, know, whew, you, you know, the spirit rock Thanksgiving retreat. You were there? I was there. <laughs> <laughs> but when we get up close to the retreat, to the talk, to me and my meditation, Talk is full of holes. The sounds and words and phrases are they're there and they're they're gone. And we are in the spirit rock center of the West Coast. What, what the heck, West Coast, Western world? <laughs> but our experience of it here we are. There's light. Eyes blink, sounds, we can feel it, it's pretty solid, but that connection with it's there, pressure, and then as we touch the floor, mixed with the sensations of our body, and maybe thoughts about how we are, where's this talk going? So what is the actuality of our experience? Now, here, it's this cascading stream of interwoven sights and sounds and sensations and perceptions and images. As we investigate, as we are interested in this. So, can you grab the spirit rock experience? Here we are. It's like if one walks up to a waterfall. Waterfall sounds like a thing. In our monastery, there was a Chithurst, there was this little waterfall with the 
Hammer Pond. We've got pretty impressive waterfall. You go up to it, it's our waterfall. Go up to it. The mist and the vibrancy, but can, can you grab it? One can be in awe of it, but is it a thing? Waterfall, it, it directs the attention, but it's, it's not a thing. There aren't actually any things anywhere. Everything's in this flux, this flow, that as we take some of this composure that we've been cultivating, and if we let go of my wrong view, the idea of, like, no, 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 if, I just want it to get smoother and smoother and smoother and smoother and smoother, and then we'll just blow the roof off. That leads to frustration, I can guarantee it. Okay, it's wonderful to get smooth, but there's, at some point, we might think it's nibbana, but it, we just keep having to wall off distraction. In the end, you might put yourself into a sensory deprivation chamber. Just have someone else, you just move your little finger, a little more temperature up, <laughs> little down. Oh my God, my nose is itching. Um, uh, get me out of here. <laughs> the mind, something will come in. At some point, there's the recognition, and that's why then the liberating, vipassana, looking into, or dhamma-vichaya, investigating, or what the Buddha called yoniso manasikara. Manasikara means attending to, or placing the activity of the mind, manasikara, the activity of the mind into the yoni, into the womb of awareness. when we notice that cascading stream of the actuality, then what, what is this thing about, well, no, I'm going to get, don't talk to me, I'm going to get to success. Okay, we're planning to arrive somewhere? Just like that waterfall, do we think we can grasp happiness or success? Even the success, when I won that tournament, when my hand was lifted up after all those thousands of push-ups and it was wonderful and I was like I had worked hard and it's not a bad thing it was euphoric but how long does your arm stay up okay mom took a picture of it and you (laughs) and you can open the scrapbook but how long can you keep the scrapbook open then your eyes start hurting And, you know, not many minutes after I won, when there was a picture of the champions, I was already scanning who's coming back next year. Who do I have to defend the title against? So, noticing change, why why is it so powerful? Why would the Buddha say something like that? It's just a bit of hyperbole, kitty, kitty sorrow. You know, he's... Got to keep the talks interesting. (laughs) I beg to differ. It is 
of another order when we start to notice change. Hairline fracture in the reality that has been projected, the real stuff. Success and me and mine and, and praise and fame and, and happiness. When we start to see things change, then all that driving to, to get somewhere, to have something or get rid of something, it starts to fade. It's called uh, we raga. It's a fading. Because, and we've experienced that. We, you know, we get the peaceful meditation and it, it changes. We love the in-breath. It's so refreshing and it turns to the out-breath. Or we love the out-breath. Oh, it's relaxing turns to the in-breath. I love the daytime, the brightness, the warmth, the, the, I mean, for goodness sakes, the sun is powering the planet. The light and then the dusk. The pleasure. Wouldn't it be nice, as our Western teacher used to say, Ajahn Sumedho, wouldn't it be nice if everything was always nice? That's a child's musing, wishing, pleasure and pain and in-breath and out-breath and success and failure. And when we start to see things that are changing, this body, these feelings, these thoughts, these moods that are so much me, I can't take another second and it's changing and I want to dedicate all my lives to the Dharma. Then that changes. Non-identification, when we, when we do identify, when we do lean on something, take hold of something as me and mine, my willpower, my strength, my agility. That's called birth, when we lean on a, a circumstance, a condition, that's identify with it, then when it shifts, when we get sick, when we get criticized, when we lose, We're thrown. It's called aging and death and and then the the scanning for another birth. As we start to really see change and when these next days we we will more deepen that, then there's that disenchantment. We realize we've been looking in the wrong place. That's a good state, disenchantment. The spell is being broken. And that weariness, that world weariness of just imagining, it starts to lessen, imagining that I'm going to get there. That the next success, the next victory, the next pleasing thing that makes us 
skip over the moment. Why that's so important to see change is it begins the great return and we start to notice the heart itself. Quote from the Buddha. At one time the Buddha was dwelling at Savati in the Jetta Grove in Anattapindaka's park and he was instructing the monks with a Dhamma talk connected with Nibbana. And the monks were receptive an intent on listening to the Dharma. Then on realizing its significance, the Blessed One, the Buddha on that occasion, uttered this inspired utterance. There is, monks, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, If monks, there was no unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, no escape would be discerned from what is born, become, made, conditioned. But because there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, therefore an escape is discerned from what is born, become, made, and conditioned. Continuing with a saying from the Buddha, enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, people aim at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and they experience mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and they experience no mental pain and grief. Thus is Nibbana. Visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, to be experienced by each wise person for themselves. The Buddha talking about a unborn, ever-present, to be experienced here and now. Sanditiko, that means here and now. Akaliko, it means timeless. It means immediate, this peaceful, unborn, undying, true nature is immediate. Ehi pasiko, it's inviting. Ehi means come see. Its arms are open. It's, we don't need a special pass. It's not 
Sorry, you're five foot six, Kitty Sorrow. It's only for tall people. Only for this race or that race or this orientation or that. No. Ehi pasiko. It's ever inviting, timelessly inviting. Openaiko means it's furthering, it's like a magnet, it's pulling us. Because it's our home ground. What blocks us, the Buddha said, when we're ensnared with lust, aversion, and delusion. So when we're trying to grab something, think something's not here and we've got to get to what we want, or when we're blinded by this idea that there's something here that shouldn't be here and then we have to get rid of it, or that delusion, imagining that Things are solid when they aren't. This is my body, my feelings, my property. That, that obscures us from seeing something that's always here. So what happens when, when we start to notice change? Okay, the mind is saying, no, 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 kitty, sorry, look, look. Okay, it's fine, hear your Dhamma talk, but I've got to get more samadhi. Could you just wrap it up a bit? <laughs> you, know, you know, the time, the Buddha said, the, the time is relentlessly passing. Could you wrap it up? Just give me a little more time. <laughs> Trying to get to the good stuff. I, I, I've got, got to get to the good stuff. That's the mantra. I'm getting to the good stuff. <laughs> and just don't get in my way. If we see that is changing, getting to the good stuff, even for a moment, the perception of uh, I'm on my way, or I oh it's hopeless. I thought I was on my way, but I think I'll never get there. I'm everybody has Buddha nature, but me. <laughs> it's impossible. It's just too. It might have been true millennia ago. Can we hear that coming and going? Hear that shifting? Even that moment of just noticing change. Letting something be instead of me so much, letting it be dharma, a pattern, a stream of phenomenon. There's the possibility then of noticing the heart itself. Yoniso manisikara, wise reflection means placing the activity of the mind in the womb of awareness. Rather than being so contracted around the apparent reality of my thoughts, my feelings, my possessions, when we have enough presence, which is what we've gathered in our samatha, our calming, and the willingness to not just be a snapping turtle, but to say, hey, what's going on here when there's some obstruction? And then recognize, allow, investigate. Then we start to notice, wow, things are changing. They're unreliable. They're not really mine. If I want them to be mine, that just generates suffering. The first disciple that tasted Nibbana, 
his Dhamma eye opened on the Buddha's first discourse, on the noble truths, noble truth of suffering, to be open to the cause of suffering, that grasping and aversion to be let go of and abandoned, the ending of suffering to be tasted, realized, and the path to be developed. After the Buddha gave that talk, one disciple broke through. He tasted Nibbana. His name was Kundanya. And at the end of the discourse, uh, the Buddha said, Kundanya knows. Kundanya knows. He knows that what has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. Kitty saw they must have left something out. It's very profound. What has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. Whatever has the nature to arise, bodies arise, bodies cease. The day arises, the day ceases. Sounds arise, sound ceases. Every sight, every sound, every taste, every smell, every sensation, every perception, every circumstance, that has a coming to be, ceases to be. Just seeing that, that disenchantment happened, he realized, whoa, do I imagine I can claim this? He took that to heart. Now in that Theravada version, they, they saw what arises, ceases, but he did in the, the Shirangama Sutra, say an image that helped him too. So I want to share that. On that same occasion, an image that helped him to get a feeling for not only the suffering that comes from grasping, but also the unconditioned, the peacefulness of Nibbana. So in in that discourse, uh, different disciples who were awakened were sharing their method of awakening. And so, uh, and he's referring to how the Buddha gave him a name. His name was Kundanya, but the Buddha called him Anya Kundanya, which means the one who knows. Anya Kundanya. And... um, So here's Kandanya talking. Of the elders now present in this assembly, I receive the name understanding, Anya Kandanya, because I was enlightened to the meaning of the word or phrase guest dust. And I realized the fruit of Nibbana. World honored one, or Lord Buddha, it is like a traveler who stops as a guest at a roadside inn, perhaps for the night or perhaps for a meal. When he has finished lodging there or when the meal is finished, he packs his bag and sets out again. He does not remain there at leisure. The host himself, however, does not go far away. Considering in this way, 
The one who does not remain is called the guest. And the one who does remain is called the host. The word guest then means one who does not remain. What are the guests right now? The sounds, the sensations, the moods, and particularly the thoughts are guests. But what's remaining? The guests are moving. Can we, yoniso manasikara means we notice the movement, but the movement is happening within that which remains, this matrix, this womb of, it's invisible, but we can be it, this womb of knowing, essence of consciousness. Sounds come and go. What remains? So that's guest. There was another image that helped him. And he said this, Again when the sky clears up, the morning sun rises with all resplendence and its golden rays stream into a house through a crevice to reveal particles of dust in the air. The dust dances in the rays of light but the empty space is motionless. Considering it this way, what is clear and still is called space, and what moves is called dust. The word dust then means that which moves. The dust is dancing. Can we notice when the light comes through and we notice the dust dancing? What if we want the dust not to dance? Come on, don't dance. That's called a recipe for frustration. The dust dances and what, what is unmoved? What is still? The guest comes and goes, but the host remains. It's just an image, but it gives us a feeling for the unconditioned, the undying. The Buddha went on in this Sharangama Sutra. Sharangama means durable, that which is unshakable. It's a word for, another word for the samadhi of, of the heart itself. The sounds, the sights, the experiencers are coming and going like the dust dancing, but can we notice the ground, that matrix, that stillness? The sounds arise and cease, and what remains? The Buddha went on to say, The primary misconception about the mind and body is the false view that the mind dwells in the physical body. You do not know, he went on to say, that the physical body, as well as the mountains, the rivers, empty space and the great earth are all within the wonderful, bright, true mind. This body is being recognized within the mind. No, 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 consciousness, the science, some people think it's a, it's a chemical reaction, it's, it's a little side product. 
might feel like our consciousness is located somewhere, but the great saints and sages, and what is our own experience? If we make a fist, the sense of our body is appearing within consciousness. Spirit Rock, the Shrine Room, the hills, the rivers, the mountains, the great earth are all within the wonderful, bright, true mind. The Buddha said it's like ignoring hundreds of thousands of clear, pure seas and taking notice of only a single bubble, seeing it as the entire ocean. When we're contracted around a mood, oh, it's too difficult. It seems so real, so solid. And it's, it can be such that we want to take our own life or take somebody else's life. The Buddha said that's like taking a bubble to be the whole ocean. That's why seeing change is so important because that mood is shifting, changing, and appearing and dissolving within this measureless, ever-present, unmoving, always here and now, ever-inviting, luminous heart. Every sound, every experience, It's like a taxi that takes us home. We can let each sound dissolve back into that ever-present listening, that ground where all things merge. Tomorrow we'll have an opportunity to practice turning the mind, just a slight shift, slight shift of attention from the conditions that we so take to be me and mine by noticing them change, by allowing them to shift, have a sense of their rising and ceasing within this unmoving, that which remains, this ground. The pathway there is letting go. When we keep thinking, this is me and mine, we're clinging, that's a recipe for frustration. When Ajahn Chah, I wasn't there at the time, but the story is when he was on alms round one day, he pointed to a huge boulder. Some other monks were with him, and he said, is that boulder heavy? And the monks think, well, is this a trick question? (laughs) But, you know, it's nice to be right for a change. So they said, yeah, Lumpal, yeah, Venerable Father, it's heavy. And he turned and said, nah. It's not heavy unless you try to lift it. 
And yet, if you're wrestling with a boulder, that's, that's stress. But if one puts it down or quits, it's relief. How many times are we, when there's an ache that shouldn't be there, or a sound that shouldn't be there, or a mood, or ourself that shouldn't be there, and we're carrying it, or pushing, or pulling, it's stressful. But what happens if we just, for a moment, really let be? I mean, the Buddha said, the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion is Nibbana. A moment of not grasping and rejecting then the ever-shining nature of our being reveals itself. It's always here. So the gateway home is that letting be, letting go, what the Buddha called patinisaga, just giving back. It doesn't belong to us. This is all part of this mysterious nature. So giving Ajahn Chah the last word. Our beloved Master Ajahn Chah. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.